0: You are listening to the inclusive classroom series for teachers and educators. Inclusion Ed provides evidence-based, research-informed teaching practices and tools to support diverse learners in inclusive classrooms. In this limited series, you'll learn about neurodiversity and anxiety in the classroom, foundation practices for early career teachers, and how to positively engage families.
1: Hello, everyone. I'm Nicole Torres, former teacher and now education community coordinator at Autism CRC and your host for today's webinar. I'd like to welcome you to our third webinar for the year, Sensory Needs. This is the third of five webinars in our inclusive classroom series. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners on the, of the lands on which we're meeting today, uh, which for me is the Turrbal and Jagara peoples of Nianjin and recognize their connection to country. I'd like to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to any First Nations people who are with us today. So let's dive in. Today we'll be discussing sensory needs and here with us to provide some insights are Ainsley Robinson from Aspect and Dr Wayne Wilson from the University of Queensland. Ainsley is the Senior Working in Partnership Officer for Aspect Research Centre for Autism Practice with the aim of embedding the lived experience throughout all services and supports within the organisation. She originally commenced with ASPECT as a researcher on an ARCAP collaboration with Autism CRC's Models of Practice project. Since then, she has worked on projects within the areas of education and twice-exceptionality and has developed a keen interest in co-production. Wayne is an Associate Professor in Audiology at UQ. His research interests include listening and listening difficulties in children, the objective assessment of auditory function and clinical competence in audiology. He has published or presented more than 500 scientific works that are cited in white papers and national guidelines around the world. Wayne has also won multiple teaching and service awards and served in leadership roles, including head of audiology at UQ and chairing national committees and task forces in audiology around the world. We are delighted to have you both joining us today. So I'd like to start by getting a bit of a broad idea of what sensory needs are. So what are the kinds of sensory processing differences that may be experienced by some of our students? And I'll direct this to Ainsley.
2: Thanks, Nicole. So for some autistic people, and um, this doesn't just apply to autistic people, but I'm speaking within the realm that I'm most comfortable. Um, So for some people, it could be um, hypersensitivity. This tends to be very common in autism. It's where you um, kind of experience those sensory experiences as seeming larger than what most people would. So that might um, look like, everything, when you go out in public just seems that much brighter or louder. And um, it's just very, it's a very overwhelming sensation. Um, when you feel things it, um, it, it like that you often sit with children with clothes on the tags, um, they'll be like grasping at that, trying to get rid of it um, because that feels like it's assaulting their nervous system as well. So that's one type of sensory difference. Um, another one is hyposensitivity. And that is when that sensory input just doesn't hit as much to, enough to be comfortable. So an example of that is children who really seek out movement to kind of feel well-regulated. Or they really enjoy bright lights and sounds and I have a son who thoroughly enjoys any sort of like light parade or something like that, because it's really beautiful to him. And he seeks out those experiences. So that's another um, type of sensory experience and then you've got mixed which is, um, I think most people to a degree. So it's when you've got a combination of those things. and. So for some people, uh, they might be very sensitive to uh, overly sensitive to sound, but they might still seek out deep pressure. Um, There's a stereotype of autistic people that we don't like hugs or tactile, but there's a subset of autistic people who really like a hug and feeling squat. Will often say have their soul squashed back into their body. So um, there's that as well. So. And some people only have differences with one of their senses. Some have differences with all. So it's a really, really broad difference of experience.
1: Mm. So, I mean, obviously it's got to do with the five senses and tactile uh, taste, all those kinds of things. Um, And you've mentioned hyper and hyposensitivities, sensory seeking, sensory avoidance. Are they kind of the same thing
2: or...? Yeah, they're kind of similar words but there's also um vestibular and proprioceptive sense as well so vestibular is more like um the sense that controls your balance and um once again not an OT I'm an autistic person who works in education so um I'll be very brief on this so there's vestibular which is you might see kids who like to tumble a lot and that's to make themselves feel well regulated with their vestibular sense and proprioception, which is um, how someone feels their body in space around them. So you might often see autistic children who are quite, um, seem quite uncoordinated and bump into door frames and stuff. It's because of lacking awareness of, sorry, I've deviated, I've taken you on a tangent here. Oh, I love tangents,
1: <laughs> it's, good. it's interesting,
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's when you'll see those things as well. So there's those two extra ones there too.
1: Yeah. Nice. Okay. Um, so obviously that these are kinds of, um, sensory preferences or sensory processing difficulties. Can these change depending on the time of day or how they're feeling or the environment?
2: Yeah, absolutely. They can change over a lifetime and they can change throughout the week or day. So, um, some people throughout their life, um, over time, One thing that happened, sorry, I I like doing personal anecdotes, but one thing that happened with me is over time I built up, um, I guess, a tolerance to sound and having my space invaded on public transport. I started working in the city when I was 18. And then over time I built up tolerance. COVID hit, didn't have to do it anymore for two or three years. Now trying to do it is very, very difficult. So that's an example of over the lifetime, but there's also... If a child is, um, and this goes for adults too, but I I believe I'm speaking mostly to teachers here. Mm. So if a student is having a day where other things are problematic, like their regular routine has been put out of whack and, um, and like the day just isn't going the way they expected and then there's really loud noise on top of that, that could be more challenging than it usually would be as well so tolerance to different sensory stuff it can waver throughout the day whether and it usually has to do with how much energy someone has to deal with it so yeah
1: so if there was something happening at home or they had a terrible sleep or something then that would change the tolerance for the sensory needs or the, the need for more input or less input
2: Exactly. So their needs just, depending on whether they have a hypersensitive profile or a hypersensitive profile, um, their need for input or their their ability to cope will change over time and like circumstance as well. So I think this can be really confusing for teachers because they might see little Johnny who is 99% of the time unfazed by something and then um one bit of sensory input might serve as an antecedent to behavior that is not like really in line with how they would usually behave and you get kind of a what looks like a different kid it just fits in within that context of that moment and everything else that's going on for them so Mm, that's
1: that's a really good point and I think it's something that um you know, teachers want to be responsive to the needs of their students. Um, I guess one way to be responsive is to kind of put ourselves in the shoes of uh, someone that may have those sensory needs. So, um, you know, obviously you can't speak for everyone, but speaking from your personal experience, can you describe what it might feel like to have sensory sensitivity?
2: Um, for me personally, what it's like is um, I am quite hypersensitive to sound. That's probably the um, one that I, that I oh, sound and light, probably a tied, which is you'll notice I'm in a room at the moment that doesn't have a light on. This is the level of comfort. Um, uh, this is the level of light I'm comfortable working at. Um, if, uh, I work hybrid between the office and at home, I've noticed when I go into the office and there's a lot of voices talking in the background, we have a lot of people in a very small space, um, between that and the lights, we have fluorescent lights and light coming in from the window. Um, my tolerance for everything becomes much less. I am a little bit more grumpy. I am a fairly happy-go-lucky person to be around most of the time. I'm a little bit grumpier in that situation and with a shorter fuse and it drains my batteries so much faster. So... Um, whereas I could sit here and probably work for 10 hours straight with no problem in this environment. That's very comfortable for me. When I'm forced to go into that environment, that's not comfortable for me, it's getting to two o'clock and I'm starting to get very exhausted and very short-tempered. So, yeah. And, and I can, uh, you
1: know, Relate to that as well, I suppose, if it's, if it's been a big day, then I go home and I want it to be silent and, you know, a little bit dim and, you know, candles, if anything. So I suppose it's, um, it, it's that different environments and the different types of day and how much energy you've expended as well, um, which completely makes sense. Uh, So I'm going to call on Wayne here um, because I wanted to ask about your area of expertise, which is more in the realm of auditory sensory needs. Um, It's an area I think we don't know a lot about, but it's widely experienced by many people. Um, I know that for me personally, if I hear a ticking clock or a dripping tap, I skip the irritated part and I go straight to rage mode. (laughs) Um, which is dangerous for everyone around me. So what are some of the things that teachers need to be aware of when it comes to hypo and hypersensitivities to sound?
0: That's a good question. And I I have to admit, I am going to come at the answer from an auditory perspective, from an acoustic perspective. And I'm going to use some slides, if I may, Mm -hmm. to just help me with my answer. And in talking to these slides, uh, I'd like to quickly acknowledge the wonderful work of many colleagues in uh, the research behind what I'm about to talk about. So the question really addresses an issue of how humans react to sound. So this is a different question to how humans process sound. We're talking more about how do we react to sound. And despite the the messy word of typical, most people when they hear sound, a driving part of their response or their reaction is the physical intensity of the sound. So in this little plot, the physical intensity is shown by the numbers on the left. And the higher the number, the more physically intense the sound. That's physics, that's the energy and the sound, that's not something that we as humans can change by thinking about it. What we can change by thinking about the intensity of sound is how loud we judge that sound to be. And for most people, sounds that are around the 30, 40, 50 decibel range, the blue part of the plot, most people would consider those sounds to be very quiet or quiet sounds. And some examples there would be the rustling of leaves, the buzzing of a a refrigerator. Bring those intensities up a little bit to that 60, 70 decibel range. Now we're getting to intensity of sound that most people would say is getting to a moderate loudness. Something that most people would be comfortable with and could stay comfortable with for long periods of time. And some examples there would be about my voice now, a conversation level voice, or a car uh, at a distance. When we keep going up that scale to the 80s, 90s and above, and we get into the red zone there, now we're getting to very high intensities. And these are intensities that most people would say are getting quite loud. When we get up to the very top of the scale, Now we're getting to sound that is so physically intense that most people would say it's not only very, very loud, it's becoming painful. It's actually too much to bear. So if that's a typical scale of loudness, most people would say uh, the rustle of leaves is very quiet. Me talking is comfortable. A truck is loud. Now we can go and have a look at non-typical or different ways that Some people respond to those intensities of sound. And now we start to talk about the broader concept of decreased sound tolerance. Now, in the auditory field, that goes by many names, and there are many arguments (laughs) around what it is and what it isn't. But I want to talk about three terms that are used a lot in the auditory sciences and in acoustics. And the first one is hyperacusis. Hyperacusis is describing a phenomenon where people describe sound that would be at moderate intensity to most people as being loud. Sound that would be quiet to most people as being moderate or loud. The concept of hyperacusis is thought to be mostly auditory, mostly to do with the auditory parts of our brain. And one of the key features of hyperacusis is this judgment of quiet sounds as being loud is mostly related to the intensity of the sound, not what the sound is. So, if it was a quiet refrigerator that you thought was loud, you would probably think the same thing than if it was a person whispering, you'd think that was loud. You think uh, if it was rustling leaves, you'd think that was loud. So, hyperacusis is a judgment of sounds that most people would find comfortable as being loud to you. It's thought to be auditory in origin. And its key driver is the intensity of the sound, not what the sound is. A second descriptor of decreased sound tolerance is mesophonia, which literally means hatred of sound. This is thought to be something different. This is thought to be more of a neuropsychiatric response where we see excessive and inappropriate emotional responses to particular sounds, sometimes called trigger sounds. This is thought to involve a different part of the brain, thought to be more frontal lobe and more to do with parts of the brain that we call the salience networks. The parts of the brain that are always looking out for sounds and then deciding how much emotional response you will give to a heard sound. A key feature of misophonia is if it's a particular trigger sound, the response can be very emotional, very much uh, around anger and, and hatred. Many of us have an element of misophonia. An example would be running fingernails down a blackboard. Most of us will go, oh, get that. I really dislike that sound, I really hate that sound. It's not the loudness of the sound, it's that sound itself and the emotional response that we see. A third area describing decreased sound tolerance is the area of phonophobia. And that's literally fear of sound. Different parts of the brain again, phonophobia is thought to be related to parts of the brain that are involved in our fear responses our fight and flight responses. A little bit similar to mesophonia, phonophobia is thought to be less about the physical intensity of the sound and more about the particular sound itself. And often the fear of that sound has been conditioned in some way. There's been a, a stimulus response, sound uh, reaction that's happened in the past that people are associating in the future that sound with that fearful event with that terrible event so the example here would be again the fridge sound the buzzing of a fridge not very physically intense but eliciting a fear response in some people now we all have a little bit of hyperacusis mesophonia and phonophobia at some stage in our lives related to things like aging like getting ear infections like changing auditory environments learning in new environments but the research suggests that people on the spectrum do have a higher rate of hyperacusis more so than the the broader population and that might be related to differences in the way the auditory brain's working in those people there's also some research evidence not a lot of higher rates of phonophobia in people on the spectrum higher than we might see in the general population of fear or fear-like responses to sound the one in the middle mesophonia, very little research on people on the spectrum in, meso- in the area of mesophonia. we really don't know if there's more or less rates of of that response to sound anecdotally though it does make me wonder Certainly, talking to many people on the spectrum and listening to how they describe some of their reactions to some sounds, there's at least that anecdotal suggestion that that sounds like a, a hatred response almost, uh, not fear, not a general response to the sound, but uh, it's that particular sound, and that's really annoying, that's really aggravating them. So, one thing I'd ask teachers to consider when they're thinking about how people on the spectrum might react to sound is to try to think about does it look like hyperacusis does it look like a reaction to any sound as being louder than it really is does it look like mesophonia? does it look more like it's an angry reaction to a particular kind of sound that doesn't have to be related to its intensity it's the particular type of sound that's causing that, that response or does it look like a full on fear response does it look more like phonophobia does it look like a, a a real fearful response to a particular sound knowing that we all experience elements of each of those through our lives knowing that our degree of those decreased sound tolerance responses can change but i would uh, leave my response at that question when you see somebody who's got a decreased sound tolerance one question to ask from the auditory perspective is does it look like hyperacusis does it look like mesophonia does it look like phonophobia or maybe a mixture of uh, two or three of those
1: I find that so interesting, Wayne, um, apart from my own experience, but also as a teacher, you know, sometimes you put on uh, some what you think is some soft background music and you have Mm -hmm. some students that say that's too loud and you're thinking it's like it's lower than a conversation, so I never thought that it could be um, something like hyperacusis. Um, You mentioned that a response to sound can be painful. Uh, Is this a perceived pain or does it actually physically damage their body or nervous
0: system. can be a little bit of both. Uh, Sound can't damage your nervous system, or I suppose an extreme sound that was so intense that it was breaking your bones could damage your your brain as well. But that would be very, very extreme. That's beyond jet engine levels of sound. (laughs) Uh, But loud sounds can damage the hair cells in your ear, not your brain but in your ear. So there can be um, physical damage to the ear, but uh, whilst that could cause hearing loss and that could lead to other uh, causes of decreased sound tolerance, the actual feeling of pain is, be it from hyperacusis, mesophonia, or phonophobia, is far more likely to be a perceived pain, a uh, a result of the extreme response from the emotion centers of our brain the salient centers an extreme response from the fear centers of our brain almost a psychosomatic perception of fear in the sense that uh, you there's not you're not being stabbed with a dagger and feeling that pain um the sound has caused a, a, an unusual response in the brain that response could be coming out as anger, that response could be coming out as fear. It could also give a perception of pain. Mm-hmm. You see that, tend to see that a little more in the phonophobia cases, where the feeling of pain is a memory of a terrible event that is the trigger of the phonophobia. The sound makes them remember that event. That event was a painful event, the sound can trigger a memory of the pain in in that loop.
1: Mm. I, I mean, we discussed in the anxiety webinar how you know fear is and, and anxiety is it's it's a perception of something but it's still not something that we should dismiss. So even though it's perceived pain, it's still felt to be real and that fear is still felt to be real. Um, so we have a question mm. from the audience. Um, they're wondering if the response to sound, is influenced more by the intensity or the rhythm of the sound?
0: Excellent question. Uh, And the answer generally is all of the above. (laughs) So our perception of loudness is quite complex. And whilst our perception of loudness is driven substantially by the physical intensity of the sound, our perception of loudness is also driven by many other things, previous experiences, memory. And you can get that sense in the description of hyperacusis versus mesophonia versus phonophobia, the sense of greater loudness and hyperacusis is mostly related to intensity. The intensity of the sound is what's driving the brain's response. The hyperacusis is coming from the brain over responding to the intensity of the sound. It's an intensity, mostly intensity driven phenomenon. In cases of hyperacusis, I wouldn't expect changes in the rhythm of sound to have a similar effect. Hyperacusis is driven mostly by that intensity. However, mesophonia and phonophobia, they're not driven by the intensity of the sound. And it could very well be possible that the mesophonia response, the hatred of sound might be related to the rhythm of that sound. It's that particular rhythm that's generating the anger response that's making people feel uncomfortable. And similarly with phonophobia, it could be the rhythm of the sound that elicits that memory of a a terrible event that drives that fear response. So could um, the rhythm of the sound drive loudness? Uh, Yes, but in hyperacusis, it's going to be more the intensity of the sound in mesophonia and phonophobia, it could very well be the rhythm of the sound. That's that's the problem.
1: Mm, fantastic. Um, Wayne, it's amazing to think about noise having such an impact on students' experience in the classroom. Mm. Can you tell us what your research says about the impact of improved classroom acoustics on learning?
0: That's a great question. And it, it comes back to the, an earlier point uh, that there's a difference between how our brains process sound And how our brains react to sound so when it comes to things like managing classroom acoustics we think about two aspects of the sounds in the classroom the sound of the signal for example the teacher's voice and the sound of the noise all the other sounds in the classroom ideally we want to make the teacher's voice a little louder get the signal up and make the noise a little softer get the noise down and in audiology and acoustics we would say we're trying to improve the signal to noise ratio make the signal better relative to the noise if you can improve the signal to noise ratio by giving the teacher a sound field system not unlike a partly what i'm doing now a, a microphone that the teacher can speak into and then speakers in the classroom that project the sound to the to the children or the teacher could have a microphone and the child could wear their own headset or headphones and the teacher's voice is taken straight to the child. That's great for helping children to better process sound. And if I was to make an analogy, I'm talking to you now with a pretty good signal to noise ratio. Let me keep talking to you in a poor signal to noise ratio. Now I'm talking to you with a lot of noise. That's going to be much harder for you to process the sound. And you can imagine trying to process the sound of the teacher's voice giving lessons for five and six hours a day. Would you rather do that with a good signal-to-noise ratio or would you rather do it with a poor signal-to-noise ratio? So when it comes to modifying the classroom acoustics, improving the signal-to-noise ratio in the classroom, there's very good evidence that that makes the environment an easier one in which to process sound, an easier one to hear the teacher to have the energy to listen, to think, to learn. And to go back to my analogy, would you rather listen and learn to this signal-to-noise ratio or listen and learn to this signal-to-noise ratio? So the evidence is very good that improving classroom acoustics, improving the signal-to-noise ratio, makes it easier for children to learn. Doesn't make them learn. I can't go from this to this And now you can suddenly tell me how to build a nuclear reactor, improving the signal ratio
1: just yet. yet. (laughs) Maybe tomorrow. Yeah.
0: Don't confuse putting children in a better position to learn with the actual act of learning. Improving the signal to noise ratio doesn't magically make you learn, but it puts you in a much better position to learn. And we've got some nice evidence that that's the case, including children on the spectrum. Mm. And some of our research uh, with the colleagues in my first slide was directly to that effect, looking at what happens if you put a sound field system in classrooms, improve the signal to noise ratio in the classroom over the course of a semester. Does that help children with and without autism to listen more easily in the classroom, to be in a better position to learn in the classroom? And our study and many others strongly suggest, yes, that's the case. But take that uh, signal-to-noise ratio improvement as helping the brain to process sound and apply it to how the brain might react to sound. And that's a different question. That's a different story. Now making the teacher's voice a bit louder and the noise a bit softer, could be good, could be bad. Certainly going to help with processing sound. But if we've got a child who is experiencing mesophonia and it's something in the teacher's voice (laughs) that is triggering the response, now making the teacher's voice easier to hear and reducing the noise could actually work against us. That's
1: such an interesting point as well. You know, it's not Mm. just making the teacher louder, but it's also factoring in so many different sounds throughout the the school as well. Um, So we will come back and and ask you a few strategies for what teachers can do um, to to try to support their students that might have these different sound tolerance uh, sensory needs. Um, But I'm going to grab Ainsley again. Thank you, Wayne. Um, And... Just wanted to touch on something that we've we've had a lot of teachers ask about, um, and that is the intersection between sensory overwhelm and behaviour. Um, I've heard of the terms shutdown and meltdown when it comes to sensory processing. Can you expand on that a little bit more?
2: Okay. So it can be to do with more than just sensory processing, but the term shutdown. Um, refers to when someone has just reached capacity, whether that's with sensory input or also the other demands that um, in this context school puts on students, and they will withdraw into themselves. They may not, a a generally verbal student may lose the ability to speak, um, may lose the ability to interact, and they will look very much just Like they're sitting there and not be able to interact at all. I personally, I think it's the way, the brain's way of kind of protecting itself. It just cannot take any more of whatever it is. And so they will go into a state of shutdown to protect themselves. Um, Generally that doesn't seem to blip on teachers radars as much as a meltdown. So a meltdown can look different from student to student. Once again, it's reaction to just too many demands, whether that be sensory Or it can also be things like they have a routine for the day and that routine has been kicked out of whack by maybe they've got a substitute teacher today or um, they can't do music in the hall because the hall's been used for something else. So that's getting substituted with a different activity. So it can happen for a variety of reasons, but that meltdown can look like crying or sobbing. For some students, they can have very big behaviours If they're just completely overwhelmed, it might be, like, pushing the person away from them that is, say, making and what they perceive as an obnoxious sound. Um, It can look like a whole variety of different things. It can look like the student's being aggressive. Um, But it just depends on how that sort of manifests for that particular student. Um, So, quite often in school environments, this can manifest... Because of the sensory environment. So it's just there's too many people talking at once, particularly with students who don't um, always have, either in that moment or all the time, the expressive communication to say, Can you please stop making that noise? or It's too bright in here. So this meltdown might actually be communication. Um, It's probably not the most functional form of communication, but it's what that child has to work with so yeah that's what a meltdown can look like due to a meltdown or a shutdown can look like.
1: Mm. Uh, I'm glad that you mentioned the communication part because we like to say that all behavior is a form of communication um and it makes me think that you know it seems that potentially a lot of the time when we see neurodivergent students acting out in terms of behavior that it could actually be a sensory meltdown um and Absolutely. that's something that I reflect on my teaching experience that there were a lot of meltdowns, you know, and, and um, what I saw as aggressive behaviour or flipping tables or something. But looking back now, I can say what happened before that? You know, it's, it's, it, it's not just the behaviour of the child. What came before that?
2: In my experience with small working with and in my personal life with small humans, there's always a reason for behaviour. Sometimes it can take quite a lot of detective work because once again, if you're dealing with someone who has um, who perceives their senses in a different way than you do, you might not even notice that thing that is ticking them off all day. Um, and if they can't tell you or write it down or show you a picture, it can, like, require quite a lot of detective work to get to what that antecedent is that's causing that student so much difficulty. But, yeah, it's... Um, uh, we. I think it used to be, this is starting to change, it used to be um, this child is exhibiting challenging behaviour. I think the tables are turning and it's now this child, this student is being challenged and I think that's how we're starting to look at it a little bit more now, um, that it's not, the child isn't the problem, there is a problem affecting the child kind of a thing. I think it's a nicer, more empathetic way of looking at teaching.
1: And, and recognising that it's not always a choice either, that it's a, a, a reaction to being challenged in, in a particular way. So
2: Yeah, I, I I very much believe it's never a choice. Um, it's a reaction. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. so So when a student gets to this stage of sensory overwhelm and it's, it's a meltdown and it's manifesting in certain ways, is there anything a teacher can do to support them at that stage?
2: Ideally, you want to put in some environmental sort of practices to make sure that it doesn't get to that stage but if you are in a situation where that has occurred I think in my personal opinion the best way of dealing with it is to have somewhere a pre-agreed area for any student to have where they can go and calm down Um, and if if they are exhibiting aggressive behaviors not um endanger themselves or other students as well, but that's calm, that's quiet, it's cool, preferably a little bit darker as well. So, um, or just if there is a safe place, and it depends on the age of the student, um, if there's a safe space outside the classroom, like if there's some seats just outside, that they have that free pass just to go and re-regulate themselves. I think that's generally the best course of action if it's got to that point. I think a lot of teachers want to because you see a distressed person and your gut reaction is to comfort that's just adding more sound that they're having to process more feeling if they've like touched them on the shoulder which you're not meant to but you know it's just more and it's more emotional demand to try and a lot of autistic people aren't very good at recognizing um what emotion exactly it is that we're feeling at that particular time so that's extra labor to come up with those answers like what's going on what's it? that will just whereas I think most of the time if you let someone settle by themselves they will eventually de-escalate. Nice um I
1: think that's you know when we've got students that are perhaps prone to running out of the classroom because they're so overwhelmed that's a really great way to kind of say okay what what are some things that we can set up to be a safe space that they can go instead of running off the school grounds or something and, and um, potentially uh, hurting themselves exactly
2: so, and being preemptive about yeah. that as well so that, that it is a safe space
1: yeah. Yeah. And, and explaining, you know, where do you need to go when when this happens and, and all that kind of thing. That's a really good idea. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to pull Wayne on again as well, because I'd like to ask you both. Um, we have a lot of teachers on the line. What are some really simple strategies that teachers can implement to support their students with sensory processing differences? And I know that's a big question, um, but I'm going to start with Ainsley and then go to Wayne.
2: Sorry, strategies for teachers can implement
1: to support their students with sensory processing differences.
2: um, I think one of the things uh, that I personally would find really wonderful is um, there's a I'm going to be a little unprofessional now. There's a TikTok going around about never ever have the big light on, and that is probably the biggest one for me. Like if you can have alternate, and once again we're talking about Government schools' budget and being able to do this. But if you can have ways of not having the big light on, normally classrooms have adequate light coming in from the windows um, and having blinds maybe halfway the way down. But once again, it has to be lit enough for all learners. Um, I think that's one thing. Um, Felt on the bottom of chairs so they're not screeching and stuff like that. That's really annoying. talking to students about their own sensory profile. My daughter's reached a point where she can't be in a mainstream class all day without getting ragey. So we're negotiating with the school that she can wear earplugs um, that don't cancel out the noise entirely, but take the edge off. So there's that. um, Also being conscious about how the classroom is set up and if people are crowding each other And that's like just being very aware that of people's personal space as well. There's some of the ones that are top of mind, um, but Wayne, you might have some. some Uh,
0: Again, I I have to state up front that I'm coming at this very much from an auditory acoustic angle only and acknowledging that that's only a part of the the story. But when thinking about uh, reactions to sounds, you can generally think of two aspects one is what's happening for the person and how can you work with the person to help them out and the second is what's happening with the sound and what can you do to manage the sound so in audiology we would call that psychoacoustics how the person reacts to sound and acoustics the physics of the sound So if we think about managing the person or working with the person, one thing is to remember it's an individual and every individual's going to have their own circumstances, but I would suggest that it's worthwhile trying to figure out if the reaction to the sound is from any of those areas that we spoke about earlier, because how you might respond to that reaction will differ depending on whether it's a general hyperacusis reaction or if it's a misophonia hatred reaction or if it's a phonophobia fear reaction. And even if you aren't confident in absolutely confirming what's going on, even just getting trying to get a sense of which of those three might be more at play, remembering it's not, it doesn't have to be one or the other. It can be multiple. What happens from there is then going to be dependent on which of those three you think you're dealing with at that point in time. So, for example, if it's mostly hyperacusis, then you might be able to get some help from auditory specialists like audiologists, people who deal specifically with humans and sound. But if it's more a phonophobia or a mesophonia response then you might need some help from a different group of people, perhaps psychologists, perhaps learning support, people who are a little more specialized in the uh, emotion side of the brain, the fear side of the brain. So the first one of trying to figure out which of the three might it be, hyperacusis, mesophonophonophobia, because that's going to direct the response, which way you might go. The second one is manage the sound, and that's where you can become an acquisition and arm yourself with some tools and some apps. And I'm pleased to say that whilst there's a lot of rubbish apps out there, there's actually a growing number of quite good apps that are quite usable, that come from reputable groups, research centers and institutes, that with a little bit of practice and perhaps a little bit of help from your physics teachers or your maths teachers, people who might be a little more experienced with this kind of thing, Uh, you can use these sound apps to, uh, particularly teachers and classrooms, to get a a rough measure of what kind of sounds are in your classroom. And you might be surprised, um, some of the research we did here in Brisbane on typical classrooms, 33 schools, sorry, 33 classrooms in uh, multiple schools, we found And typical classrooms, typical schools, we found the vast majority of those classrooms would fail national standards on allowable sound in an empty classroom, let alone allowable sound in a classroom with people inside. So I've just popped some maps up there that's from reputable sources. Uh, I do acknowledge there might be a little bit of a learning curve there for some teachers, particularly those who haven't done a lot in maths and physics for a little while but uh, with a little bit of help, they're relatively easy to get used to. Once you've measured the sound in your classroom and once you've got an idea of, is it loud? Is it soft? um, Is it better in the mornings? Is it worse in the afternoons? What's going on? Then looking to improve your classroom acoustics. And very similar to what Ansley was uh, commenting on earlier, there are lots of things you can do to reduce the noise in the classroom and to bring the teacher's voice up a little louder in the classroom. And that range of things is getting better. And it's going from the cheap and cheerful things like uh, for those noisy chair legs scraping on the floor, cutting tennis balls in half and sticking them under the chair legs, to acoustic tiles that are actually becoming quite affordable. Pick them up at Bunnings, pick them up at uh, other hardware stores that are quite decorative, quite um, pleasant to look at, or they can be quite plain if you need them in that direction. But things that can be done to treat, acoustically treat a classroom that 15, 20 years ago would have been out of everybody's price range. And then continuing up, if you do have the money and the resources to the, uh, the proper audiological and engineering support that could really come into a classroom, assess the sound from top to bottom, and really go perhaps a little crazy on treating that environment. But the two points here are, there are some reasonable apps out there now that can give you a reasonable idea of the sound in your classroom. What are you dealing with? And there's quite a range of uh, classroom acoustic options available, starting with the cheap and cheerful that are more available and getting better now, but also going all the way to uh, the the more expensive. Uh, To get you started on the classroom acoustics, not a bad place to start is to Google how do I improve my classroom acoustics and you will actually find some uh, reasonable responses there again look for the where they're coming from but there are some lovely guides out there now that can really help teachers get started on improving classroom acoustics including the material on inclusion ed
1: yes it is as Yeah, well. way. Anyway, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> there's lots on inclusion ed um, about uh, improving acoustics which is fantastic um So I'm just cognizant of the time. And um, I just wanted to ask you both uh, one final question. So what is one key takeaway that you want teachers to know? Um, And we've discussed so many wonderful things here, but I I guess if this is, you know, if they leave with just knowing these things, then job done. (laughs) I'll I'll start with um, Wayne and then go to Ainsley. Uh,
0: For me, and again, excuse my bias coming from the auditory perspective. Uh, Get to know the sound in your classrooms. Know if you have a quiet classroom, noisy classroom, get that uh, acoustics knowledge of your classroom, and that's going to help you figure out what it's going to take to improve the acoustics in your classroom. And When you're seeing a child with a difficult reaction to sound, do the best you can to try to determine if that incident is hyperacusis, mesophonia, or phonophobia. If you can get a sense of which of those general areas this is looking like, that's going to help you a lot to know what the best response will be. Do you need to bring the sound down? Do you need to get rid of the sound? Do you need to work with the child to think about that sound? Through Those three options, knowing which way to go, can help a lot with getting the right response for the child.
1: Ainsley, what's your one key
0: takeaway that you want
2: teachers to know? My one's not a strategy or anything like that. It's a bit um, bit, love and peace and all of that sort of (laughs) stuff instead. Um, It's just that messaging around... um, I've worked with a lot of little humans. I have my own little humans and I have never come across a time where they're genuinely trying to be difficult. Um, so it speaks more to that sort of sort of meltdown, shutdown sort of a thing. Um, I think most little kids want to come to school and learn every day if there's nothing else affecting that um, and for teachers just to assume that. And really look for the reason as to, and this is this is broader than just sensory as well. It goes into all those other sort of, um, I guess, behavior things. I'm not a fan of behavior, but yeah, human behavior things. Um, little people act the way they do because of a reason. It's it's never just for fun or to be difficult or to troll a teacher. There's there's always something going on that causes that. So assume the best and try and dig a bit deep.
1: I think that is such a good point because understanding all of this and reflecting on my own teaching, it's so much easier to say that's the naughty kid and then Mm. it's the onus off you to actually have to do anything. It's so much harder and this is still recognising even in my teaching experience how difficult the job of being a teacher is. It is. All the sensory needs in a classroom but it's, it's, it's actually coming at it with a sense of curiosity, like what's going on for that little person? Why might they be reacting that way instead of that defensive motion that we might experience? So, Mm -hmm. um, so that's a really good point to make as well, because I I think uh, we want all children to be able to, you know, all of our students to be able to learn and enjoy that learning. Um, So let's, meet them halfway and and see what sensory needs are in the classroom and how we can help them. So really, really good point. Um, So thank you again, Ainsley and Wayne, for sharing your time and insights with us. Um, I know that sensory needs can seem like a really complex concept, but you've both explained it in such easy to understand terms. So thank you so much for sharing your expertise. I'd like to also thank all of our listeners for joining us today. I hope that you found this webinar informative and insightful, and I encourage you to keep this professional learning going by registering on Inclusion Ed. Uh, registration is free and it is jam packed with evidence based and research informed teaching practices, strategies and resources to help you support your diverse learners. Uh, including a lot of things that we've discussed today like sensory needs and um, acoustics in the classroom. So check it out at inclusioned.edu.au. You can also follow our inclusioned Facebook page and support your teaching community by taking part in sharing and learning in the community of practice. Thank you so much everyone. Uh, I hope you have a lovely evening and enjoy.
0: If you enjoyed this episode, you can find out more by going to inclusioned.edu.au to access a suite of free resources to help you support diverse learners in inclusive classrooms. You can also join the Inclusion Ed Community of Practice Facebook group for regular posts about our practices, as well as strategies and ideas from other education professionals.